Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is uh, Vincent Philip Munoz. I'm the director of Notre Dame's Program in Constitutional Studies, and it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you to uh, today's event. Uh, a few announcements before I introduce our, our speaker. Um, our next event is actually later this week on Thursday. Uh, Jeremy Bailey from the University of Houston will be giving a lecture on COVID and the Constitution. Uh, you can find uh, out information about it on our website, uh, constudies.nd.edu, but it's COVID on the Constitution. That's come Thursday, two days from now at 12.45 p.m. It will be via Zoom and uh, all are invited. Please uh, join us for that. Uh, uh, note a thank you to my colleague, Sot Barber. Uh, this lecture is part of his class, uh, Sexual Morality uh, in the Constitution. Uh, so thank you to Professor Barber and thank you uh, to his class, all the students in the class for sharing their class time uh, with us. Um, Professor Barber's class is part of the Constitutional Studies minor. If you're interested in the minor, please um, send me a note or uh, Soren Grevenstadt. Um, you can find out information on the website uh, as well. Uh, a real pleasure today to uh, introduce our speaker, uh, Professor James Fleming. Uh, Professor Fleming is the uh, Honorable Paul J. Lycos Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. Uh, received his law degree from Harvard, PhD from Princeton. Uh, he's one of the nation's leading scholars on constitutional law, constitutional interpretation, uh, and constitutional theory. Uh, he's uh, written five books, uh, including Fidelity to Our Imperfect Constitution, uh, published by Oxford in 2015, Ordered Liberty, Rights, and Respo Rights Responsibilities, and Virtue, uh, Harvard University Press in 2013, and uh, but not, uh, certainly not uh, the least of his publications, Constitutional Interpretation, The Basic Questions uh, with our own Professor Barber. Uh, this afternoon, Professor Fleming will be speaking about Masterpiece Cake Shop, The, moral the Moralization of Commerce, and the Price of Citizenship. Um, <laughs> Professor Fleming, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, please join me uh, in welcoming our speaker. So thank you very much, uh, uh, Philip, for inviting me to speak at Notre Dame. Uh, I also want to thank Jen Smith and uh, Soren Grevenstedt for their good work in facilitating this event. And thanks especially to Professor Sot Barber. I hope all of you students know how fortunate you are to have uh, Professor Barber as your teacher. Many good things have come to me through my now 43-year friendship with Sa, uh, including uh, co-authoring three books. Uh, and to sum up my appreciation and respect for Sa, I want to read briefly from my dedication of uh, my last book to him, along with the late Ronald Dworkin. This was the book, Fidelity to Our Imperfect Constitution, for moral readings and against originalisms. So I wrote, I dedicate this book to two exemplars of the aspiration to fidelity to the constitution as written, the late Ronald Dworkin and my longtime co-author, Sant Barber. Both exemplify courageous, vigorous, and responsible pursuit of the best understandings of our constitutional commitments. Both inspire with their, their fire in the belly and their brilliant, eloquent, and indefatigable arguments against originalism in all its guises. 
So thank you, Sat, uh, uh, for your uh, excellent work all these years. Um, now, as Professor Munoz said, the title of my talk is Masterpiece Cake Shop, The Moralization of Commerce and the Price of Citizenship. Uh, and my lecture is based on chapter nine of a forthcoming book on the legal enforcement and promotion of morals and public values in the US constitutional order. Uh, the book, Constructing Basic Liberties, a defense of our practice of substantive due process is to be published later this year by University of Chicago Press. Um, now, as you know, it is through our practice of substantive due process that the US Supreme Court has protected the rights of same-sex couples to intimate association and to marry. And I'm sure these are subjects of your uh, course with Professor Barber. Um, in this chapter I'm gonna uh, uh, lecture from, I focus on conflicts between equal rights for gays and lesbians protected, for example, through anti-discrimination laws together with judicial decisions like Obergefell v. Hodges safeguarding the right of same-sex couples to marry on the one hand and religious liberty. Recent developments have dramatically posed the question whether legislatures should grant exemptions to business people who disapprove of such rights on religious grounds. And the four justices who dissented in Obergefell have warned that protecting the right of same-sex couples to marry threatens the religious liberty of those who oppose that right. Yet Chief Justice Roberts in dissent acknowledged that every state that had recognized same-sex marriage had created religious exemptions. And nothing in Obergefell implies that the state statutes already granting such exemptions were unconstitutional, nor would it prohibit legislatures prospectively from creating them as long as they do not impose substantial burdens on the rights of others. So Obergefell clearly leaves room for the democratic processes to continue to operate as before in creating religious exemptions. Now, to be sure, exemptions will not satisfy those who oppose same-sex marriage altogether, nor will they satisfy many supporters of equal rights. Yet, limited exemptions seem to some to be a reasonable approach to ameliorating clashes between gay and lesbian rights and religious liberty. Now, in Order Liberty, Rights, Responsibilities, and Virtues, Linda McLean and I, I should say Linda is my sometime co-author and full-time spouse. Um, in that book, Linda and I argued for conceiving religious exemptions concerning same-sex marriage as a prudential remedy rooted in recognition of religious and moral objections to extending marriage to same-sex couples. These exemptions stop just short of affording full equal citizenship to gays and lesbians for the time being out of respect for and deference to those religious objections. And we acknowledge that there may be pragmatic reasons for creating such religious exemptions during periods of rapid cultural and constitutional change. Doing so, we observe, might help to minimize backlash against gay and lesbian rights. But we tendered the hope that the prudential mutual adjustment by granting religious exemptions would prove to be a ladder to full equal citizenship through acceptance of same-sex marriage. And thus we hope that the need for such exemptions will wither away along with religious objections to such marriage. 
just as after uh, Loving versus Virginia, religious objections to interracial marriage have gradually withered away. And after all, in a morally pluralistic constitutional democracy such as the United States, the aspiration is to social cooperation on the basis of mutual respect and trust, not to the absolutist vindication of the rights claims of one group over those of another. At the same time, we should recognize that religious exemptions undermine the government's formative project of inculcating civic virtues like tolerance and promoting the public value of securing the status and benefits of equal citizenship for all, including gays and lesbians. So religious exemptions are sites of resistance to such civic virtues and public values. Now, I mentioned that in a perceptive article, Christopher Eisgruber asked, is the Supreme Court an educative institution? And he argued that in some cases, the court may teach by offering lessons capable of inspiring Americans to honor their values. And so I wanna suggest that Supreme Court opinions in attempting to resolve conflicts between rights and culture war controversies, in particular between gay and lesbian rights and religious liberty, might teach lessons to citizens concerning how to accommodate such conflicts. Court opinions might model how to secure the central range of application uh, 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 of each conflicting right, rather than vindicating one right absolutely to the exclusion of the other with one side winning it all in a culture war. And these opinions might also teach how to speak with respect concerning both gay and lesbian rights and religious liberty. And I primarily analyze the US Supreme Court's decision in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission and I assume many of you are, have heard of it or, uh, or, or even read it, but I also discussed the New Mexico Supreme Court's decision in Elaine Photography, LLC versus Willock. In so, uh, such cases, I wanna suggest teach two important lessons. One, that anti-discrimination laws properly exact a commitment to non-discrimination in the marketplace as the price of citizenship, to, to invoke a phrase from Elaine Photography. And second, they teach the importance of government affording equal respect both to gays and lesbians and to religious opponents of gay and lesbian rights. Now, at first glance, Masterpiece Cake Shop and Elaine Photography seem quite different. Uh, I want to show you uh, a couple of slides here. If this will, if my screen should, ah, I'm, I should have asked. Uh, for uh, the ability to share screens. I had some slides, but um, uh, that, that I should. Um, Soren, can you let me share the screen? Sure, try again now. Okay, okay, very good. Okay, here we go. Okay, so uh, Elaine Photography holds for the same-sex couple Here's Vanessa Willer. And against the photographers, the Huguenins, who declined to photograph a same-sex ceremony on the basis of religious objection. And I'm gonna focus on Justice Richard Bassan's concurring opinion in that case. Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop, by contrast, holds for the baker, Jack Phillips, 
who refused to bake a wedding cake to celebrate a same-sex couple's marriage, that of Charlie Craig and David Mullins. And of course, I'm gonna focus on the majority opinion of Justice Anthony Kennedy. Um, now, Justice Kennedy's majority opinion chastises the Colorado Civil Rights Commission's hostility toward Phillips's religious beliefs, holding that it was, quote, inconsistent with the First Amendment's guarantee that our laws be applied in a manner that is neutral toward religion. But on closer examination, I'm going to suggest these cases proved to be quite similar, okay? Now, in his concurring opinion in Elaine Photography, Justice Richard Besson stressed that the New Mexico anti-discrimination law is broader than Title II of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibited discrimination in public accommodations on the basis of race, color, religion, or national origin. New Mexico's law, he observed, has expanded to preclude invidious discrimination in almost every public business, including photography businesses. It has also extended the prohibited classifications to include sexual orientation. And he interpreted this expansion of New Mexico's law in terms of evolving understanding of what forms of discrimination are, quote, intolerable. He wrote, quote, the Huguenins today can no more turn away and customers on the basis of sexual orientation than they could refuse to photograph African-Americans or Muslims. And he treated religious, racial, and sexual orientation discrimination as intolerable without saying that the Huguenins are bigots for the sincere beliefs they held. To the contrary, he stated, quote, their religious convictions deserve our respect. But are the Huguenins, as some conservative critics have charged, being unjustly driven from the public square? Now, Bassan acknowledged that they are compelled by law to compromise the very religious beliefs that inspire their lives, which he calls a, quote, sobering result. Nonetheless, he would tell the Huguenins, quote, with utmost respect, that this is part of the, quote, price of citizenship that we all have to pay in our civic life. And he argued that civic life in a multicultural pluralistic society requires some compromise with an accommodation of the, quote, contrasting values of others. And he observed that the Huguenins retained the constitutional protection to, quote, to think, to say, to believe as they wish, and to, quote, follow their God's commandments in their personal lives. But, he argued, in the, quote, smaller, more focused world of the marketplace of commerce, the public accommodation, they, quote, have to channel their conduct to leave space for other Americans who believe something different. And notably, Bassan concluded that such compromise, quote, is part of the glue that holds us together as a nation, the tolerance that lubricates the varied moving parts of us as a people. So this concurrence exemplifies what I call a civic educative function of a judicial opinion. And Masterpiece Cake Shop, I argue, teaches similar lessons. Now, many contend that Masterpiece Cake Shop was a narrow holding as a matter of constitutional law, and maybe so in the sense that the Supreme Court did not accept the Baker's broad arguments concerning religious liberty and freedom from compelled expression, arguments which, if accepted, would have imperiled the structure of anti-discrimination laws. 
the court simply set aside the Colorado Civil Rights Commission's order against Phillips, postponing to later cases how best to resolve the many difficult and delicate questions the case raised. And the court stated that the commission's consideration of Phillips's case was neither tolerant nor respectful of Phillips's religious beliefs. So basically the court held that, ba that the baker was entitled to a hearing before the commission that was neutral and free from hostility toward religious views. But it's important to appreciate that in reaching that narrow holding, the court taught some broad lessons concerning anti-discrimination laws with profound implications concerning clashes of rights and the price of citizenship. And the best way to appreciate these lessons is to quote the passages from Justice Kennedy's majority opinion with which Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg opened her vigorous dissent. So Ginsburg began, and throughout the next couple of minutes, she's quoting from Kennedy's opinion. Or she says, there is much in the court's opinion with which I agree. And here the quotes begin. Quote, it's a general rule that religious and philosophical objections do not allow business owners and other actors in the economy and in society to deny protected persons equal access to goods and services under a neutral and generally applicable public accommodations law. And second, she quoted Kennedy as saying, Colorado law can protect gay persons just as it can protect other classes of individuals. This would include on the basis of race in acquiring whatever products and services they choose on the same terms and conditions as are offered to other members of the public. And third, she quotes Kennedy, purveyors of goods and services who object to gay marriages for moral and religious reasons may not put up signs saying, quote, no goods or services will be sold if they will be used for gay marriages. And fourth, she quotes the opinion as saying, quote, gay persons may be spared from the, quote, indignities, such indignities when they seek goods and services in an open market. Ginsburg concluded, quote, I strongly disagree, however, with the court's conclusion that Craig and Mullins should lose this case. All of the above statements point in the opposite direction. So in a nutshell, the court made these very broad pronouncements about the legitimacy of anti-discrimination laws in seeking to secure the status of equal citizenship for gays and lesbians by promoting non-discrimination and even equal dignity and respect for them in, uh, in the marketplace. Now, another way to bring out how narrow and broad the ruling was is to focus on how the Supreme Court conceived the Baker's right to free exercise of religion. So let us notice several available conception of religious liberty articulated in the US culture wars which the court did not embrace or presuppose. First, some religious opponents of same-sex marriage assert or presuppose that respecting their religious liberty requires that the state must define marriage in accordance with their religious beliefs as the union of one man and one woman. Put another way, they assert or presuppose that a right a right that same-sex marriage must not be recognized. Now, you may think no one argues this, 
Yeah, the dissents in the Supreme Court's own gay and lesbian rights decisions from Romer in 1996 through Obergefell in 2015 make clear that Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito believe that recognition of gay and lesbian rights as such imperils religious liberty. And Thomas and Alito recently reiterated that view in a concurrence in the decision turning down the appeal from Kim Davis, the Kentucky County clerk who had been sued for refusing to issue marriage licenses for same-sex couples right after Obergefell was decided. And I have heard Ryan Anderson argue that anti-discrimination laws prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation as such deny religious liberty. So the court clearly did not accept these very uh, uh, ambitious uh, conceptions of religious liberty. Second, some religious opponents of same-sex marriage assert or presuppose a less ambitious right not to be compelled to be complicit in same-sex marriage. For example, a right not to be compelled by anti-discrimination laws to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding ceremony. And perhaps this formulation is synonymous with my next formulation. And this is, I think, some assert or presuppose a right to religious exemption from laws protecting gay and lesbian rights. That is, if a state prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or extends to same-sex couples the right to marry, as it must under Obergefell, religious opponents then have a right to religious exemptions from such laws. Now, note that the assertion of a right to religious exemptions is a second best solution. One argues for religious exemptions only when one has lost the larger battle against gay and lesbian rights under anti-discrimination laws or marriage laws. And I want to observe that the religious opponent's ideal would be to win it all in these larger battles, as I've heard Matthew Frank of the Witherspoon Institute say, insisting that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And you'll recognize that as a quotation of one of Abraham Lincoln's uh, famous arguments uh, against slavery. And we come by, and so I want to note that the court in Masterpiece Cake Shop did not respect either of these last two conceptions of religious liberty. There was no holding or presupposition in Masterpiece Cake Shop that anybody had a right to a religious exemption, even though legislatures might well uh, 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 create them. And we come finally to a weaker formulation a right that government in any proceeding under a constitutionally permitted anti-discrimination law prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, not express hostility toward religious objections to gay and lesbian rights, or put another way, a right that government be neutral toward religion in such a proceeding. So these are four possible conceptions of religious liberty in the context of Masterpiece Cake Shop. Which of these available formulations of rights to religious liberty did Masterpiece Cake Shop assert or presuppose? Well, clearly the last one, simply a right that commissioners not expect or government not express hostility 
toward religious objections to gay and lesbian rights. Okay, now, so in closing, Kennedy offered the following guidance to courts considering future cases. He wrote, quote, these disputes must be resolved with tolerance, without undue disrespect to sincere religious beliefs, and without subjecting gay persons to indignities when they seek goods and services in an open market. And arguably, the Elaine concurrence is a model of respectful rhetoric and of resolving with tolerance, since it explicitly says the Huguenin's beliefs, quote, deserve our respect, even as it says they must follow New Mexico's law. Okay, so now I'm going to zero in more on the Masterpiece Cake Shop case itself. So Jack Phillips, the baker in Masterpiece Cake Shop, argued that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission showed hostility toward his religion. And he cited a comment by an individual commissioner during a hearing on his case. The commissioner said, quote, freedom of religion and religion had been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust. And to me, it is one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people use their religion to hurt others. So this comment troubled Justice Kennedy, who concluded that it expressed hostility toward the baker's religious opposition to baking the wedding cake. And that's the crux of his holding. First, Kennedy thought that to compare Phillips's religious beliefs about marriage to religious defenses of slavery and the Holocaust was, quote, a sentiment inappropriate, close quote, for someone charged with neutral enforcement of the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, which protects, quote, on the basis of religion as well as sexual orientation. Okay, and second, he found that the commissioner's despicable piece of rhetoric comment disparaged Phillips's religion in at least two distinct ways. One, by calling the appeal to religious beliefs despicable, and two, by characterizing it as merely rhetorical, something insubstantial and even insincere. Now, another factor showing hostility, Kennedy said, was the disparity in how the commission ruled in a different case when it affirmed the right of three other bakers to decline to bake cases, cakes bearing anti-same-sex marriage imagery, anti-gay rights imagery, requested by someone named William Jack. Okay, so let's break down the commissioner's statement into two propositions. The first part, I quote again, freedom of religion and religion had been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust. But this proposition is undeniably true as a matter of historical fact. Religion has been used to justify slavery and the Holocaust, even if religious people today do not wish to be reminded of these facts. So in concluding that this statement expressed hostility toward Phillips's religious beliefs, the court in effect seems to be imposing a religious or conservative political correctness upon the commissioner 
by forbidding him to say what is undeniably true because it offends religious sensibilities. Now let's look at the second part. Quote, and to me, it is one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people use their religion to hurt others, close quote. Now here, Kennedy was nearer the mark in his interpretation that this remark expressed hostility toward Phillips's religious convictions. But I can certainly imagine a progressive Christian minister, and we've got a lot of them here in Brookline and across the river in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I can certainly imagine a progressive Christian minister preaching a sermon about, sermon about love and respect for all of God's children, saying these very words. And Justice Ginsburg made good arguments that the court was flawed in attributing the attitudes of this one commissioner to the entire Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and in turn to the Colorado Court of Appeals decision upholding the commission, because it was they were hearing an appeal from the Colorado Court of Appeals decision, which itself had neither invoked nor rested upon that one paragraph statement by one of the many Colorado Civil Rights Commissioners. Um, now, um, I want, um, so I suggested a moment ago, my initial reaction to the majority opinion's finding of hostility toward Phillips's religious beliefs was to fear that the court was in effect imposing a religious or conservative political correctness upon civil rights commissioners by forbidding them to recognize undeniable historical facts that religion has been used to justify the Holocaust and slavery, not to mention denial of civil rights in the United States because those facts offend contemporary religious sensibilities. And I feared that Scalia had bludgeoned Kennedy into this finding over a period of 20 years with his pugnacious overwrought culture war dissents and all the gay and lesbian rights cases from Romer in 1996 through Obergefell in 2015. But the students in my seminar on jurisprudence, contemporary controversies over law and morality, argued that even if what the commissioner said was undeniably true historically, bringing up these general facts in the context of the Baker's particular hearing might imply hostility toward his particular religious convictions. So from this perspective, it might have been perfectly appropriate to say these very same things in a legislative proceeding concerning whether to pass a general law establishing religious exemptions from anti-discrimination law prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. But on this view, it would not be appropriate to make this observation in an administrative proceeding concerning whether a particular religious person here, the baker, had discriminated on the basis of sexual orientation in violation of the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. So this is a very lawyerly distinction about what kinds of remarks are appropriate in what legal fora. And so on this view, the case is teaching an important civics lesson 
about respect for religious liberty in a particular case, together with respect for gays and lesbians rights in general to be secure in the status of equal citizenship through acknowledging the legitimacy of anti-discrimination laws prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. So seen in this light, um, Justice uh, 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 Kennedy's uh, uh, opinion implicitly acknowledges what Bassan in Elaine Photography called the price of citizenship. Government must respect religious convictions. It must be neutral uh, and not express hostility toward a particular person's religious convictions when determining whether that person has violated an anti-discrimination law. But when one operates a business, a public accommodation engaging in commerce, one like, likewise must tolerate or even respect gays and lesbians. Um, now I wanna, uh, 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 in, in, in the final part of this, uh, uh, of, the, of the talk, I wanna step back from these opinions and reflect upon anti-discrimination laws and arguments for religious exemptions more generally. Uh, in order liberty, McLean and I uh, defend the government's role in a formative project of inculcating civic virtues, developing the capacities of citizens for self-government in a morally pluralistic constitutional democracy, and promoting public values like securing the status of equal citizenship for all, including gays and lesbians. So we view anti-discrimination laws as playing a vital role in such a formative project as mechanisms for promoting the public value of equality. Public accommodations laws on this view are not just about protecting the right to procure a hamburger or a hotel room when traveling in interstate commerce. I'm making an allusion to a couple of famous civil rights cases from the 1960s. Instead, more importantly, public accommodations laws, they're not about hamburgers and hotel rooms. They're about securing equal dignity for all, whatever one's race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, or gender identity. So anti-discrimination laws are not simply negative, protecting minorities against denials of goods or indeed equal dignity, they're also affirmative. They're part of a formative project of government promoting the public value of equal citizenship for all. Through anti-discrimination laws, government is implicitly aspiring to change the attitudes of the discriminators itself, themselves. It's aspiring to teach the discriminators that their discrimination is intolerable. And I believe it is this recognition that drives the discriminators to object, invoking West Virginia versus Barnett, that government through anti-discrimination laws is, quote, prescribing what shall be orthodox or compelling them to express a message with which they disagree. And this recognition is also what fuels Justice Thomas's and Justice Gorsuch's acceptance of the compelled expression argument in concurrence in Masterpiece Cake Shop. This is an argument that the majority did not accept. And finally, elsewhere, uh, uh, Professor Barber, uh, uh, Steve Macedo, Linda McLean, and I build on a conception of the US constitutional democracy as a large commercial republic. Now, I don't plan here to elaborate or defend that full vision 
uh, associated uh, 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 that that I think you may be familiar that the students in Professor Barber's course may be familiar with. I simply want briefly to invoke one aspect of it. The large commercial republic is religiously and morally diverse. And in such a diverse society, the hope is that even though people disagree about religion and morality, they may be able to engage in commerce with one another. And the further hope is that people's getting together and trading with one another may moderate their religious and moral differences. For people may see that despite their religious and moral disagreements, they can trade with, get along with, and maybe even come to appreciate other different people. And so I conceive the large commercial republic in this respect as a mechanism for a formative project of inculcating civic virtues like tolerance and promoting public values like equal citizenship for all, including gays and lesbians. So the aspiration is that trade will moderate religious and moral disagreements and differences and will promote social cooperation on the basis of mutual respect and trust. Because trade facilitates contact with people who are different from us and promotes at least toleration of them, if not appreciation and respect for them. But for this mechanism to work, people have to trade, come to see and even appreciate their commonalities and their differences and come to accept even to respect others with whom they disagree on religious and moral grounds. And from this standpoint, religious exemptions for businesses, including wedding photographers and bakers, undercut the formative influences of the large commercial republic. They undermine the salutary civic function of trade in such a republic and moderating differences, promoting tolerance and respect, and securing the status of equal citizenship for all. So religious uh, exemptions balkanize trade, and in doing so, balkanize the polity. And so if we are to keep in view this larger formative project of promoting social cooperation on the basis of mutual respect and trust, we should be cautious about creating broad exemptions. And from this vantage point, it may be that Justice Bassan in Elaine Photography and Justice Kennedy in Masterpiece Cake Shop model a better course, according respect both the gay and lesbian rights and the religious beliefs in opposition to such rights, while yet acknowledging that anti-discrimination laws exact, uh, exact the price of citizenship. And what is more, we should acknowledge forthrightly that the moralized commerce that comes with religious exemptions is a double-edged sword. Religious exemptions from anti-discrimination laws moralize commerce in a divisive way, and in doing so, um, uh, invite counter-moralization of commerce. In a culture war, both sides can moralize commerce in divisive ways. For example, you can be sure that many opposite sex couples in Colorado who are committed to gay and lesbian rights are not going to order wedding cakes from Masterpiece Cake, Masterpiece cake Shop. They'll take their business elsewhere. Uh, and moralizing commerce in these divisive ways will be easy in the era of Twitter, Facebook, Yelp, Google reviews, TripAdvisor, and many other similar sources of reputational information 
and sanctions. So recognizing all of this, I hope, will give us pause before we head down this road to moralizing and balkanizing trade in these decisive ways. Now, as mentioned above, er, as mentioned earlier, in Order of Liberty, Professor Mc, Linda McLean and I adopted a prudential attitude toward granting religious accommodations, at least in periods of rapid cultural and constitutional change, yet we tendered the hope that the need for them would wither away. Um, and we should acknowledge that prudence also may counsel against granting broad or longstanding exemptions in a large commercial republic that aspires to secure the status of equal citizenship for all, for they undercut the salutary civic function of trade. So I should stop right there. I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Professor Fleming. <clears throat> we have a tradition here at the program. Uh, we always invite our students to uh, ask our first questions and we should invite the students of Professor Barber's class uh, since this really is your class. Um, it'll probably be helpful to me if you use the raise hand function. And when you ask your question, if you can just uh, unmute yourself and uh, tell us who you are. So any, any students with a question? Students, students, any students? Okay, I see one in the chat function. So let me go ahead and just read this. Uh, this is from uh, uh, Meredith. Uh, uh, Meredith, do you, are you with us here? Do you wanna go, just go ahead and ask your question? Oh, sure, yeah, no problem. Go ahead. Uh, I just said like, what underlying civic virtues do you think are necessary for a functioning democracy? And then like more specifically, since you've gone over all these, are there any virtues that you think the US desperately needs to have modeled via the Supreme Court that are currently lacking in our society or just could use a little bit more guidance? Okay, well, that's a great one to begin with. How many days do we have for this Zoom meeting, uh, Philip? Uh, no, I think that, um, there are many civic virtues that are necessary and which I think are woefully lacking at the present time in the United States. Uh, I would include civic virtues like uh, 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 tolerance uh, uh, and respect for others who are different from us, a commitment to reason giving rather than assertion, uh, a commitment to thinking about what promotes the common good, not just what uh, promotes uh, our own, uh, our own uh, uh, partic particular interests. Um, I also think there are certain civic capacities that have, uh, 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 that need to be more fully developed. Uh, uh, this includes capacities to um, to, to sort through um, inform in information and assess its veracity, assess its, uh, uh, its soundness and the like. Um, recently, Professor McLean and I wrote a paper on constitutional rot and civic education because our next project together over the next five years or so is to do a book on civic education and circumstances of extreme polarization. Uh, uh, and I do think that for a variety of reasons, our nation has been neglecting ci uh, 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 civic education in uh, the classrooms throughout the United States. And I think 
it, uh, it, it, it shows in the various forms of, of, of constitutional rot of our institutions and indeed of the people themselves in these times of extreme uh, 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 polarization and distrust of one another. Now, you, the second part of your question is, are there any virtues that you think the US desperately needs to learn and have modeled via Supreme Court, but that are currently lacking in society? Well, in the opening part of my paper, I give a few uh, examples of the Supreme Court performing civic educative functions. Um, and I just want to mention one of them uh, as a, um, uh, a transition into um, a, 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 an answer to your uh, uh, question. Um, that there, um, I quote some famous opinions that are hortatory that uh, encourage us to reflect upon our deepest commitments as a people, commitments that we might be failing to realize in particular cases. But then I also mention that an opinion of the Supreme Court might bring out the civic dimension of constitutional commitments, perhaps highlighting their role in a civic educative project or emphasizing their significance performing for performing civic duties. And I quote from Justice Brandeis's famous concurrence in Whitney versus California, freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth. The greatest menace to freedom is an inert people. Public discussion is a political duty. And I observe that unfortunately, this civic dimension is largely absent in recent freedom of speech decisions. Recent freedom of speech decisions appear to be grounded in distrust of government and a deregulatory approach to freedom of speech rather than a civic conception of the First Amendment. Just to give an example, the Supreme Court has become increasingly absolutist in its protection of freedom of expression. Now, in an earlier time, the great First Amendment absolutist was Justice Black. And Justice Black's absolutism, I think, was driven by a civic conception of the First Amendment, a conception of the value of extremely stringent protection of freedom of speech for the people to engage in constitutional self-government. But I think the current Supreme Court, the current conservative Supreme Court, has put that view aside in favor of a First Amendment absolutism that is driven primarily by hatred of or distrust of government, that we can't trust government when it engages in any form of, of regulation. And so, for example, I think the nadir of this is the, the case involving the Stolen Valor Act, where a, a law had prohibited people to from lying about military honors that they had received. And this is not a matter of opinion. It was undeniably true. I may not lie and say that I won a Purple Heart, okay? 
But the Supreme Court struck down that law, not because my lying about receiving a Purple Heart has any value for constitutional self-government, but because the court didn't trust government to regulate even lies about indisputable matters of fact. Uh, so I think we're in very bad shape with this Supreme Court when it comes to any uh, 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 to, to the civic purposes of some of our constitutional freedoms. Okay, another question from a student. Well, let me uh, let me take the prerogative then of the chair and ask a, a few of my own. Um, okay. Uh, two questions, and I, I think they're related, but you might uh, uh, want to treat them separately. Um, uh, your paper clearly in the, t the talk uh, is clearly based on a, a normative conception of uh, who, who ought to be tolerated and of, of social progress. I wonder if you could take us a bit through some of the steps uh, you go through to get there. So um, uh, religious, uh, views, traditional religious views uh, can be tolerated for now, but not perpetually. Uh, and, and I presume that's based on a normative status on uh, what flourishing and matters of sexuality is. Uh, but can you, can you take us deeper? Uh, because it seems that those, those moral arguments at the end of the day are what grounds, who gets tolerated and, and why. Right. Uh, and while you would um, uh, extend respect to everyone, uh, respect means treating them nicely. It doesn't mean uh, necessarily letting them live <laughs> under the law according to how they wish to live. Um, right, right. Okay. And then maybe relatedly to this, um, I, I think it's related, um, on, on, the, on commerce in particular, um, you, you um, argue for a duty to, to serve all comers, uh, those who would engage in commerce with you. Do we have a, a, a corresponding duty for the consumer a duty to engage with commerce, a duty to engage with commerce with those who we disagree. I mean, I, I have in mind a few summers ago, uh, all sorts of artists said they would refuse to uh, go to North Carolina because of the status of transgendered rights or the National Basketball Association. Yeah. Is it also morally blameworthy for the NBA to boycott just as it would be for a, a business owner to effectively boycott? Does the duty to engage in commerce go both ways? Okay. Well, uh, there's a lot there in those questions. Um, now, first of all, um, I'm writing this piece uh, and, and concluding this book in 2021. Um, and we've had a, 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 a tireless and over time highly effective gay and lesbian rights movement in this country, uh, galvanized starting in 1969 with the Stonewall riots. Um, and so our nation has come a long way since 1969. And I think by Obergefell, or certainly by today, we've reached the point where I think we can say that there is in this country a public value of according full uh, status of equality 
to gays and lesbians. Now, how did they get here? Well, maybe you start out with very thin arguments, live and let live, tolerate gays and lesbians. And as of um, Romer versus Colorado, uh, 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 Romer versus Evans, uh, uh, early on in the Supreme Court recognition of gay and lesbian rights, uh, Justice Scalia said, well, grudging toleration by the seemingly tolerant Coloradans, meaning we've uh, decriminalized sodomy laws, but that doesn't mean we have to afford non-discrimination protection to you. He acted like that was, that, uh, 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 that, that was sufficient. That was all that might be owed to them. And, uh, but uh, I think the next step toward full citizenship status is not just grudging toleration, but respect. Now, you seem to say in your question that respect is short of full appreciation, and that is true. I think that what has uh, helped gays and lesbians uh, or LGBTQ uh, uh, plus folks generally in this social movement over time is what I'll call following Michael Sandel, moral goods arguments, uh, justifying rights uh, and uh, en uh, enabling people over time to recognize the analogies between the moral goods gays and lesbians are pursuing through say intimate association or marriage on the one hand, and the moral goods sought by opposite sex couples. And I think that moral goods arguments uh, are more effective than mere toleration arguments because toleration arguments win at best a thin toleration without an appreciation, without a full acceptance of the status of equals. Whereas I think moral goods arguments are more effective in persuading people that these folks like us here, the opposite sex folks are, are, are seeking uh, um, the same moral goods through exercise of their freedoms as, uh, uh, as opposite sex folks are. And I think that explains why, for example, the Goodridge, uh, Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court decision extending marriage to same-sex couples, and Obergefell, the US Supreme Court decision extending marriage to same-sex couples. Those opinions speak strongly, not, of, not just of toleration, not just of respect, but of full acceptance and appreciation of these folks as leading a morally worthy form of life that is entitled to the status of equality in this uh, 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 in uh, in this country, uh, it took a lot of effort to get there. It wasn't some liberal justice who just abstractly thought, "Well, my moral predilections favor gay rights." That's the way Scalia. Uh, uh, and Thomas try to present it. 
But I think instead, these opinions like Obergefell are reflecting an appreciation of the power of the arguments that folks engaged in this social movement have made. And I think it's large, I think that, 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 that coming out of the closet, seeing that uh, 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 has enabled uh, more opposite sex folks to recognize these moral and accept these moral goods arguments for uh, uh, same-sex uh, uh, folks. Um, and so um, I think that uh, with, uh, I, I think I may be losing part of your question, but that would be how I would conclude that there is a public value uh, that to which our constitutional order is committed at the present time to securing the status and benefits of equal citizenship for LGBT, well, at least same-sex, at least same-sex couples. Uh, uh, there are many more battles uh, for uh, LGBTQ rights generally. Now, to move to the second question, there is there are public accommodations laws prohibiting discrimination on the basis of race, gender, and now sexual orientation in about half the states. And public accommodations are not like who you invite over to your home for a dinner party. I take the view that public accommodations are in public, and this is a public law commitment of the states that have these laws. Now, I don't think there's necessarily a, uh, 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 well, I didn't present uh, uh, boycotts. Boycotts don't start without a basis. Boycotts are reactive. That is to say, um, Jack Phillips discriminates on the basis of sexual orientation. Then if people boycott Masterpiece Cake Shop, they are reacting to him. If he discriminates, I don't think they have a duty to go in there and purchase their wedding cake from him. Uh, so, um, and also, uh, uh, and also, I don't think that persons in their private capacity are engaged in anything like providing a good or service to the public. So, so it's two parts. One, it's not a reciprocal situation. I don't necessarily see a duty on the part of the consumer. And second, I see the boycott as reactive. And my hope would be that it is often the case that what is good for business is good for civil rights. It's not, all, it's not always the case, but I also think that over time, one would hope that um, in response to boycotts, businesses would 
seats would reconsider their discriminating. And one would hope that then as they serve customers who are different from themselves, they would come to see that, oh, well, these folks are pursuing moral goods analogous to the to the moral goods that uh, 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 that 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 straight folks are pursuing, uh, and I also think that um, if this were 1965 and Jack Phillips were claiming a right to religious discrimination, I'm not on the against uh, interracial uh, 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 marriage. Um, I, I, I don't think, I think that we were clearly at a point where there was a national commitment to securing the status of equality for African-American members of the community. We're not quite there yet when it comes to gay and lesbian members of the community, but my hope is that before long, perhaps helped along by religious exemptions, um, there would be uh, a recognition of the status of, of these folks as equals. There's a hand from Patrick. Yeah, we'll go to Patrick. I, I wonder, Professor Fleming, if I could just push a little bit, though, because you gave a moral argument for the goodness of commerce. Yeah. And then if I understood your response to my question, you said, well, um, uh, it's not, you, know, you don't have to engage in commerce if you're reactive. And there's reasons. Well, but everyone has reasons not to engage in commerce. Does it really? Is, does the moral difference really depend on who acted first? That 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 wouldn't seem to withstand scrutiny. Uh, and then you talk about well, one, you're offering goods and services, but the artist, the touring artist, is offering goods and services. So I, I what, what's the moral distinction? Uh, if engaging in commerce is good, why is it only a one-way street? I mean, you have to give a thicker account, don't you, to defend your position? Well, I don't quite understand. Are you saying that if I need a wedding cake, I have a moral obligation to get it from Jack Phillips? No, I, well, I, I understood your argument to be that- But, but, but I, I think it's asymmetric because he's holding himself out in public as providing wedding cakes. And under public accommodation laws, that means wedding cakes to all. So he has a general duty as a public accommodation I'm not, uh, and look, I didn't- But your argument wasn't simply because of public accommodation law. Your argument was about the goodness of commerce and that commerce makes us fellow citizens. That's what no, I did. My point was that if, if he's gonna moralize commerce in a divisive way, let's back up. Commerce is moralized in the large commercial republic to begin with, because we hope that, that uh, uh, commerce will have this salutary effect of bringing different people together. So commerce is moralized. So Jack Phillips moralizes commerce in a morally divisive way by saying, I, I'm not gonna serve all, even though I'm a public accommodation. I'm only gonna serve the people who I think are consistent with God's will. Okay? But this is exactly what people- my, But my point is if, if he moralizes in a, moral, in, a, in a divisive, discriminatory way, notwithstanding the aim of public accommodations law in Colorado, I'm saying it's only to be expected that people on the other side of that culture war 
are going to moralize in divisive ways. And I see this as unfortunate. I'm, yes. I, I see this as bad, but I see this as to be expected if we have people moralizing in divisive ways. And so I don't, I, I'm always amazed when the people who moralize in commerce in divisive ways act outraged when liberals and progressives boycott them. My point is, be careful what you wish for. That's what you're, that's what you're going to get. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying that's going to happen and that's why I say we should take take we should be very cautious about going down this road of exemptions to begin with. But at the same time, I think sometimes, at least briefly, accommodations might help ease social and constitutional change. But I hope that when Jack Phillips comes to see over time, well, he knows some, he knows some gay couples. He didn't, he didn't even know they were gay. The people who move in next door to them, him are, are, are a married gay couple. I hope over time he will see, well, I, sh I, uh, I should accept them and I should see the analogies between the moral goods of straight relationships and those of gay, of, of gay and lesbian relationships. And so I hope then he will say, okay, I relax, okay, I relax that I serve all as Colorado public accommodations law inspired me to do to begin with. I, I understand your point, but it seemed to me that the argument you are making against being divisive is the same argument that uh, people were making against Colin Kaepernick and the NBA, that you're dividing things and therefore you shouldn't do these boycotts and protests. And so I was trying, I was looking for a moral argument on how we could distinguish it, but it seems to me that your argument could be used, uh, weaponized against anyone, which is my concern. But, but we should go to Patrick here. Uh, the students have a question. Yeah. Thank you very much uh, for speaking to us, Professor Fleming. I'm also going to press the question of symmetry between uh, boycotts and selecting who you, uh, for example, sell cakes to. So I'm sorry not to let you off the hook. But my question is, it was sort of universally assumed in the masterpiece case that uh, you know wherever you came down originally on the issue, um, that the uh, complainants would have a stronger case if there were a group uh, of businesses, or if say all of the businesses in Colorado refused to do business with them. Uh, that wherever you know whether or not they were winning in the status quo, their claim would be stronger. Uh, but it seems to me that um, if you know a boycott, and I know you were sort of elided, you went from. Uh, the question of organizing a boycott to the question of whether or not you individually have the obligation to go buy a cake from a particular cake shop. But it seems to me that if, uh, if the question is organizing a, a boycott, that brings to bear a social force um, in, in terms of bringing people together in a, in a consumer union that would almost uh, make it more morally concerning that you're trying to bring sort of the entire weight of society to bear on a particular business rather than your own sort of individual decisions as a consumer. So does the argument that uh, you know the complainant's case in Masterpiece Cake Shop would be stronger if they couldn't get a cake anywhere in the state, does that entail uh, that trying to organize consumers in the manner of a boycott is more objectionable from the grounds of uh, the moralized commerce uh, than just your individual decisions as a consumer? Well, um, look, I am not saying, oh, let's mobilize and let's boycott and there's a moral 
justification for these boycotts. I'm saying more that it's to be expected that this is going to happen. So I'm not clear why it's incumbent upon me to offer some kind of moral justification for the boycott. But I'll also, um, I think that um, in a world of balkanized trade, where say we don't have boycotts, um, it becomes much more difficult to navigate trade. For example, um, if I'm going to go, I remember once I was going to go visit some relatives in Keokuk, Iowa. And I saw this beautiful place on TripAdvisor. And I said to my wife, Linda, let's stay here. But then I read the reviews on TripAdvisor and there were several uh, lesbian couples who objected to the way they had been <laughs> treated there. So I thought, okay, well, I can't, we're not staying there. And then we found another place where we stay. Um, I'm saying that it's unfortunate if we're gonna live in a world of balkanized, moralized, divisive trade. I think it would be a better world if people were to come to accept these public values of equality so that I could just stay at the most beautiful place I'd like to stay at rather than taking the morality of it into, uh, into account too. And the same goes for Jack Phillips's uh, 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 <coughs> cake shop. Um, but I'm not clear on why, the, I'm not gonna offer a moral defense of boycotts, but I'm not clear why you think that it's objectionable that there would be a, a, a boycott. Um, as you seem to, or did I misunderstand it? Patrick, do you want to follow up? Yeah, I would say I think uh, my understanding is that uh, a boycott, when you move from an individual consumer decision to a boycott, in the same way that when you move from like an individual business decision to like trying to say form a cartel uh, to deny service to a particular group or class of people, uh, you're moving from an internal decision about your own preferences to an external decision about whether or not someone else should be permitted to participate in the sphere of commerce. And that's what makes it more morally objectionable. So I think I'd wanna go on record as ob objecting to both the cartel and the boycott. Okay, but I'm not sure how it is that the boycott, are you telling me that people will, that, that people who support Chick-fil-A are not gonna be able to go in and get their chicken sandwiches because there's a boycott? they're still free to go in and get their chicken sandwiches even though there's a boycott. I'm not sure I understand how it is that the boycott is interfering with their right to patronize Jack Phillips or in my example, Chick-fil-A. So I, I still don't get the problem. I would say I generally understand the goal of a boycott to make a business unprofitable and consequently to cause it to close. 
Well, I'm still not I'm still not getting what's wrong with that. I think I'm simply trying to argue to for a symmetry. Um, I'm just trying to argue for the the symmetry, but I really do okay. appreciate your perspective on it, okay. uh, and thank you very I'm much. I'm sorry, I'm missing something, but no, I get I get no. your point. Um, but again, I don't think any particular consumer has an obligation to buy goods at anybody's particular business. So I uh, so so I I I, den I, I deny I, I deny the symmetry. I think I have an aspiration that I could live in a world where if Jack Phillips makes the best wedding cakes, that's where I'll get my wedding cake. But if I live in a world where he can balkanize commerce, notwithstanding the Colorado anti-discrimination law, then I'm gonna buy a wedding cake somewhere else, even if it's not quite as good a wedding cake as he makes. Uh, uh, Saat? Yeah, I think I may. Can you can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. I think I may be asking Patrick's question and Philip's question in a, a different way. Um, I guess I would put it this way. I, I won't ask a question. I'll just uh, 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 make an assertion and see how you would react to it, uh, Jim. It seems to me that. Uh, the idea of neutrality between, let's say, religious beliefs and, uh, in this case, liberal beliefs, is really a false neutrality, that uh, there really is no neutrality, uh, that the large commercial republic and its attendant values seeks actually to subordinate religion. And the idea of reaching some kind of of uh, the idea of a uh, prudential accommodations for the time being in larger quests for reconciliation and understanding is really a project of getting people to abandon some tenets of their religious faith that's actually against those religions which are opposed to the kind of uh, accommodations that you you call for. That there really is no neutrality between uh, uh, liberalism and anti-liberalism, uh, that uh, one has to dominate the other. And I think that religious, uh, that, that, uh, religious people are increasingly, increasingly beginning to see this. Ryan Anderson, for example, Robert George, probably Philip Munoz, and uh, others are beginning to see that this is a false neutrality and that uh, the idea of uh, religious freedom is that 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 the uh, constitution that the people who make the argument that you're making are really not respectful of religion, but want actually to uh, to eliminate those religions that oppose uh, liberal values. But see, I think that um, official respect for all faiths or or government neutrality doesn't require that all faiths or any given faith have a right that there be congruence between their religious views and the public law of the whole community or the anti-discrimination law or the family law of their state or of all the states. When we're talking about 
civil institutions, and we're talking when we're talking about public accommodations, I think that uh, some of these religious people have been accustomed to there being a congruence between their religious views and the public laws of the country. But I'm disputing that they have a constitutional right that there be such a congruence in the face of public values of equality as they've evolved over time in this country. They still have a right to their religious beliefs. They just don't have a right that their religious beliefs be the public law of the country. The public law of the country is gonna be committed to securing the status and benefits of equal citizenship for all. Uh, and I, I think that, uh, I think that things like religious exemptions are seeking, if you will, to shrink the public, are, are seeking to shrink the public place in, or space in order to recover the former congruence between their views and public values to which they had grown accustomed, but to which I argue they had no constitutional right. And yeah. I deny that it's somehow denying respect for religions not to afford them a right that their religious view, that, that, that we have laws that are congruent with their religious views. So I deny that it is a danger to religious liberty as such, that there be same-sex marriage or that there be anti-discrimination law prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Uh, uh, Jim, we're out of we're out of time. Okay, okay. The students um, have class the classes to get to. So let me okay. um, I, I'm going to I want to let the students go because uh, I know they need to go to other classes. Uh, Jim, I wonder, though, if I could just ask one very quick, yeah. quick, quick question and maybe this would help clarify yeah. things. Or can we let the students go yeah. first? Yes, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Please, students, please yeah. go. For those who want to stay, please stay. Yeah. Um, Jim, this is a question I asked for, uh, in some of my classes. So here at Notre Dame, we have a on-campus hotel and, of course, we have our basilica. Um, uh, clearly, your position is that the on-campus hotel would have to do a gay wedding uh, reception. Uh, that's that's clear to say. What about the basilica? Do, do, does the does the Notre Dame have to do gay marriage in the basilica? Uh, no, certainly not. I mean, Why I think not? that I think that I think that there are always going to or there. I think that that exemptions for say clergy members or exemptions for religious facilities really are very different from what are conventionally called places of public accommodation. But Jim, Jim short, short, short answer to Philip. There is no right to marriage. There's only a right to civil marriage. Right. But right. You, would, you would surely not let the Basilica, if the Basilica um, said no interracial marriage, you wouldn't allow that, right? You would strip federal funds from Notre Dame tax-exempt status, why wouldn't you extrip 
tax exempt status if they don't do gay marriage. Well, I think I think 50 years from now we would. I think that why that, why should we wait for justice? Well, because the aim is uh, long-term stability and and acceptance of the status of equality for all, as I see it. Uh, And so I think that there's room for some strategic and pragmatic judgments as we try to get there. And if there are good reasons to fear that the backlash is going to make it harder to get there, I think that there may be good prudential reasons to go uh, to slow it down and not demand immediate justice everywhere. But there were some of the... But that implies there's no constitutional right for a church not to suffer real consequences, denial of tax exemption, uh, elimination from public benefits for not performing same-sex marriage. Well, there's no right. There's no right to tax exemptions, and there's no right to public funding, or uh, or the ability to conduct marriages itself. I presume. Well, I, uh, a the basilica could the basilica could refuse to uh, to marry an interracial couple on religious grounds, and then but then if the government were to cut off funding to the university for its for what it, what can't take place in the basilica, that doesn't implicate a constitutional right because there so is, is no right to public funding. And and so, but you would apply this to a church sanctuary as well, but not non-discrimination law. And yeah, if if Bob Jones University, for example, if Bob Jones University has a chapel, and they refuse to to wed an interracial couple then the IRS could simply revoke Bob Jones's tax exemption. And uh, even though that might be regrettable and debatable as a matter of policy, I don't see that, uh, that Bob Jones has a right to uh, public funding for policies, even if faith, even if faith, uh, motivated by faith, I don't think they have a right to have the public authority support uh, policies that oppose the values of the system. And, and if uh, invidious discrimination was criminalized, could you imprison a Catholic priest for refusing to do a gay marriage? Assuming the hypothetical that we criminalized really, uh, no, invidious no, Philip, I don't think we could criminalize a Catholic priest for refusing to do a gay marriage. And uh, you're crossing the border now from from a, a reasonable hypothetical to an unreasonable hypothetical. Uh, this is the parade of horribles that just simply doesn't exist. But the Catholic priest or no priest has a right to public funding, has a right to public funding either in the form of cash grants or tax exemptions. You, you think it's unreasonable, the idea of criminalizing invidious discrimination is unreasonable? I'm sorry? I don't think I think it's not saying we don't have criminal law generally and a discrimination law isn't criminal isn't criminal law. We don't put, we don't put we don't put people in jail for being actively racist. 
We don't criminalize being actively racist, but nevertheless, being actively racist is against the values of the, of the is against constitutional values, and therefore the government shouldn't foster, encourage, subsidize, or uh, 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 so, uh, otherwise support except a bare minimal criminal law. In other words, just because a person is actively racist, that doesn't give me the right to go out and kill that person. Um, but as long as they provide the minimal services of the night watchman state to people who are opposed to the values of the regime, I don't believe those people have a complaint, at least not a constitutional complaint. All right, I, you know, this exchange is exactly, I think what we hope to, uh, hope to foster, sharp exchanges and, uh, Professor Fleming, thank you very much. Professor well, Barber. Let, let's let's not stop. The session's over. Let's continue for a little well, while. I, I have to go. I have a day job and I have to go teach. So and I'm going <laughs> to okay, be well, in my own maybe, class. So. Maybe Jim can stick around and maybe yeah. Patrick can stick around and we can continue the conversation. By all means, I, I have to sign off. Okay, um, well, thank you so much, Paul. Uh, okay. Right, thanks, thanks, Professor Fleming. Thanks. Thanks, Appreciate it.